So a number of years ago, before we had children, Megan and I were going to take a camping trip. Now that already tells you what a wonderful woman that I am married to, and that I could take her camping in a tent for vacation. And at the time, for all of those of you who have known me for a long time, one of the things that you know about me is that I take camping pretty seriously, all right? Especially then, like, I like to be the guy that everybody else called and said, hey, I'm going to do this, what do I need, or how do I need to do it? Like, like I would like to think that if there was an honorary doctorate being awarded for camping, that I'd be under consideration. And so I took a lot of pride at that time. I was even working in a camping store. I just finished working in a camping store. So I think I think a lot of pride in kind of having my stuff together, having my ducks in a row. And so we get, we load up in this car that I had at the time, which was a Honda Element, and I had it because it was supposed to be a car that you could camp in, right? And we loaded up all of this camping stuff and we drove to the North Georgia mountains, three and a half hours deep into the North Georgia mountains. And we get there, and Megan's got her things that she's kind of setting up, and I'm the tent guy, right? I'm the tent guy. That's my first and most important job is to make sure that the tent is right. So I I go, and I get the tent, and I I lay out meticulously the the footprint of the tent and get that stake down. And then I go, and I get the tent itself, and I unroll it. And and I've got this thing rolled up like a Marine, baby. I mean, just perfect, everything just on spot. And I unroll the, uh, the tent on top of the footprint, and then it hits me. Like a cold shower, it hits me. I don't have the poles. I don't have the tent poles. Now, I know exactly where said tent poles are, and they are three and a half hours back in Anison in my closet. And I've got to tell this sweet, beautiful little brunette that I have driven her three and a half hours into the middle of nowhere on the week of Thanksgiving, and I don't have a tent. And I don't have a place for us to sleep. I don't have a shelter. And we are, by the way, in bear country, okay? And I've got nothing. And so I I go and I, 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 hey, babe, uh, funny thing, you know, uh, yeah, there's not going to be a tent. And so we got to test out the whole camping in your car experience over the course of that week. It worked out all right. The next day, the next day, we were supposed to hike, and we did. We backpacked up Blood Mountain, okay? It's almost 5,000 feet that I had this woman walking behind me, and of course, it was going to be this whole deal, like, I'm big into backpacking, so I had the backpacking meal and the backpack on and the whole deal, and all of my food requires boiled water, okay? If you know anything about backpacking, we're big on the freeze-dried foods in the backpacking community, and so all of my food required boiled water. Now, after the great tent fiasco, my wife has forgiven me. I'm going to take her up. We're going to have this nice picnic on top of Blood Mountain, and so I march her all the way up this mountain, and we get there, and uh, I forgot the water. (laughs) And you know where there's not water? You won't find many streams at the top of a 5,000-foot mountain. And so we didn't get to eat. And so twice on one trip, Mr. Camping, Mr. Preparation swung and missed, and missed 
big time. Have you ever found yourself in a situation in which you needed to be prepared, but you were irreversibly unprepared? This morning, the parable that Jesus is going to tell is he's going to tell a parable about five women who found themselves irreversibly unprepared for the coming of the bridegroom. Five women who knew he was coming, knew what their responsibilities were, knew what they were to do, but instead ended up being so unprepared that the door was shut for them and they were locked outside of the gates of heaven. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 25? Matthew chapter 25. Once you get there, would you stand with me as we read God's word together? In Matthew chapter 25, we're going to read the first 11 verses together. God's word says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in and with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore. For you know neither the day nor the hour. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. So where we come to Matthew chapter 25, we are still in the midst of what we call the Olivet Discourse. And in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus is explaining and answering the questions of his disciples so that they can know what to expect during the season of tribulation and during the timing of his return. And so as they sit and as they await his return, they will know exactly what it is to look for. And Jesus tells them clearly and plainly that you should not worry about this time. You should not be alarmed about this time. You should not be frightened by this time. For I am going to use this time to prepare you. I'm going to use this time to set you apart as my church. I'm going to use this time as a time and as a season to purify my church and to galvanize my church and to set my church aside as my bride. Instead, you should concern yourself only with being ready. You should concern yourselves only with with preparing your lives, preparing your families, preparing your churches, preparing your communities for my return. Now, as we read and as we've listened to Jesus teach throughout the Olivet Discourse, and as we see, in fact, this morning, is when we come into the Olivet Discourse, there are only two classes of people. When it comes to the day of Christ's return and it comes to the moment in which Christ will come back for his church and the sky will illuminate and the trumpet sounds, that on that day there will be only two classes of people. 
Now, in our world, in our society, we're accustomed to there being many different classes. We divide people by education and by, by wealth and affluence or lack thereof. We divide people by race and ethnicity. We divide people by nationality and region. We divide people by religion and creed. We have all of these different classifications that we have for various people. But on that day, on the day of Jesus' return, on the moment in which he comes back for his elect, on that day, there will be but two classes of people. You will either be the mourning or the rejoicing. You will be like, the, like Noah in the midst of his generation, delivered and set free, or you will be like the rest of his, his generation, swept away by the waters under the condemnation and judgment of God. You will be like the farmer, one who is taken or one who is left. Like the women at the mill, one who is taken and one who is left. You will either be found as the faithful servant prepared for the master's coming or you'll be found as the lazy, wicked servant doing whatever you want to do and you will feel the full breadth of God's judgment and be cast to where there is only weeping and gnashing of teeth. So as we come into this parable this morning, we see this theme carried forward. That there are, are ten virgins, but among the ten virgins, there are but two classes. There are the wise and the diligent, those who are prepared for his coming, those who rejoice in his coming, those who celebrate in the feast of the bridegroom, and there are those who are wicked, those who are foolish. The actually more literal translation is the word stupid. Those who are stupid and silly and unprepared for the return of their bridegroom. And so this morning, this morning before he returns, we can know that in our church, that among this congregation, those who hear our, my voice, there are still but two classifications of people. Those who are ready and those who are unready. Those who will be delivered or those who will be condemned. Those who will celebrate and rejoice over the return of Jesus Christ. And those who will loathe and lament and mourn over the return of Christ. Where do you stand? Where do you stand? Not what do you say? Not what have you believed? Not what have you done? Where do you stand? Are you ready for the return of Christ? Are you ready for that day in which Christ comes back for his groom? Are you prepared and walking in fruitful obedience with him so that it is evidence to him and to the rest that you are, in fact, his disciple? Are you committing your life and your heart so that your heart is filled with a radiating love for Jesus Christ? Are you ready? As Jesus begins to tell the parable, he begins to tell the parable of Ten virgins that are preparing for the return of the bridegroom. The way that you might think of these virgins is you might think of them as being very similar to our bridesmaids today. That in a, a wedding in, uh, in ancient Palestine, what, what would happen is that it would, was really the biggest event in the village of the year. Like this was the highlight of everybody's month or week or year or however often they were happening at the time. Like this was a time in which everybody looked forward to because everybody in the village got to celebrate. Everybody in the village got to enjoy it and everybody went all out. So what would happen is you would have 
the bride and she would be with her family in the family home and you would have the, the groom and they would be betrothed to each other. You probably remember when Joseph was betrothed to Mary and that's when Mary became pregnant with Jesus. And the, So there's this one year, it's similar to an engagement, but it's really a lot more than that. Like You're already legally bound at that point. But what the groom would do over the course of that time is he would prepare his house. He would go and he would get all of his affairs in order. He would build up and save up a dowry to go and to pay the father for the bride. He would prepare the home and, or build a home so that his life was ready to support, protect, and provide for his bride. And at the end of that one-year period, what would happen is he would have all of his buddies, all of his homeboys, and they would come, and they would join him, and they were like the groomsmen of our day. And over the course of the night, they would walk and march in a parade across the town to go to where his bride was. And when he got there, he would go into the home, and the mom and the dad of the bride would be there, and he would have to make his case as to why he was worthy of their daughter's hand in marriage. And what the mother and the dad would do, what the parents of the bride would do, is they would cause this to be delayed. And the longer they delayed the groom, the, the, the longer they delayed the bridegroom, the more honor they were showing to their daughter. Because they were showing that he has to make a strong case. He has to make a full case. That their daughter is not just any daughter. This is our daughter. And she's going to be your bride when we say she's going to be your bride. And she is a prize. She is a treasure. And she is to be your greatest gift from the Lord. And so they would go and they would make him make his case over the course of hours. And the longer that he was delayed in his coming by the mom and the dad, the greater the honor was for the bride-to-be. And then, once it was well into the night, once it was way deep into the, maybe even the early morning hours, they would give the permission for the groom to go and to take his bride. And so he would, find, he would show up to where the bride was staying and all of her bridesmaids would be there. All of the maidens would be there. And they would be waiting there and they would have torches. And when the bridegroom came, they would light their torches and he would go and he would get his bride and they would march in parade all the way back across the town and all of the wedding party would be singing and celebrating and shouting, holding their torches against the night sky, showing that the bridegroom has come, the bride has been received, and now the celebration commences. And so as we come into the story that Jesus is telling, this is the backdrop. This is the backdrop. The, the ten virgins, the ten maidens have come, and they are a part of the wedding party, and they are awaiting the arrival of the bridegroom. For when the bridegroom comes, they're going to light their torches and they're going to march with them all the way across the town and celebrate and invite all of those who want to come to come and to rejoice and to celebrate with them. And so what we see as we watch is we see that the, the bridegroom is delayed quite a while. That in this particular case, the parents have decided to, make a, to, to force him to make a strong case as to why he is worthy of their bride. And while he's doing that, the, the uh, maidens fall asleep. They all get weary and they all get tired and they fall asleep. 
And then he shows up. He comes while they're sleeping in the middle of the night at midnight when they're least expecting him. The bridegroom shows up and they all exclaim, the groom is here. The groom is here. And they light their torches. Except five of them, half of them realize their torches won't light. Half of them realize that when the bridegroom comes, they are ill-prepared for his arrival and their torches will not light. What we have, brothers and sisters, is one of the most terrifying parables in all of the Scripture. One of the most terrifying passages in all of the Scriptures. Because what you have is you have these two classes of people that are being separated out. One who is judged, one who is received, one who is condemned, one who is celebrated, one who mourns, one who rejoices. But what's terrifying is that from the outside looking in, they look the same, don't they? From the outside looking in, they look the same. That Jesus is not writing this parable to the Pharisees. Or Jesus is not speaking this parable to the Pharisees. Jesus is not speaking this parable to the depraved and debauched generation. Jesus is not speaking this to a, a group of atheists. Jesus is speaking this to his disciples about the nature of his church. He's speaking this to people who claim to be his disciples, who claim to be Christians, who claim to walk in his way, who claim to walk in obedience with him. But in fact, even within the church, even within the discipleship community, even among the believers who make these claims and take these actions, that there will be a separation that takes place. That among those who are within the church, among those who are within his discipleship community, there will be a division that takes place. And even within there, there will be some who are condemned, some who are received. See, these virgins, they had a lot in common, didn't they? They had a lot in common. They were told about the bridegroom and they wanted to be a part of it. They showed a desire to be a part of the celebration of the bridegroom. They were all given the exact same invitation. And receiving the same invitation, they all demonstrated the same desire. We want to respond to that invitation. We want to respond to the invitation given to come and be a part of the celebration of this great wedding that's to take place. They were all given the same responsibility. That they're going to be outside and they're going to light up the torches and, and go and walk on together. They all show up. They all show up. All ten of them are there. All ten of them are reporting for duty. All ten of them get weary and fall asleep. So from the outside looking in, it looked like they were all the same. From the outside looking in, it appeared as though they were all on equal footing, except that Jesus says that at the end, half of them had the door shut in their face. And when the, the bridegroom came and opened and cracked the door and looked out, he says, you need to leave because I don't know you. You see, it sounds a lot like Matthew chapter 7, doesn't it? It sounds a lot like Matthew chapter 7. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says that there will be many on the last day who say, did we not preach in your name? Did we not perform many mighty works in your name? Did we not do many good things in your name? 
And Jesus will say, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, for I never knew you. These are preachers that preach in the name of Jesus. These are people who claim to be Christians and do Christian things. But brothers and sisters, as we see in this parable, as Jesus taught us in Matthew chapter 7, saying that you are a Christian, acting like you are a Christian, even believing that you are a Christian, does not make you a Christian. It does not make you a Christian. That you can say Christian things and do Christian things and even believe Christian things about yourself and not be within the kingdom of God. That within the church, within those who gather every single week and give their money and do all of their things within the life of the church, that even within the church, there are those who believe about themselves to be walking with Christ, to know Christ, who in fact are excluded from Christ and who will have the door shut in their face and Jesus say to them, depart for me you worker of lawlessness I never knew you see seeming like a Christian doesn't make you a Christian seeming like a Christian doesn't make you a Christian being able to pass a Christian test doesn't make you a Christian having done Christian things that appear Christian from the outside looking in they don't make you a Christian Think about what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If you've ever heard, uh, ever been at a wedding, you've probably heard 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's the famous love passage of the Bible, but it really has some words that if we will slow down and absorb them, they're terrifying. They're terrifying. You know what Paul says? Paul says that if you write, if you are a generous person, and generosity is one of the things that is most unnatural to human beings, isn't it? Generosity, being able to, to give away the money that you've earned and that you've used and that you've done, like that's one of the most anti-human nature actions that a person can take. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that if you find yourself among the most generous and writing the most generous checks, in fact, if you find yourself being so sacrificial and so generous in your giving that you give away every dollar that you have, in fact, not just every dollar, but every possession that you own, so that you are left with nothing more than the clothes on your back, and you give all the rest to the needy and all the rest to kingdom purposes, but you don't have love, but you don't have a love of God radiating in your heart, if you don't have a passion for Christ radiating in your heart, you don't have a love for your neighbor radiating in your heart, it's all pointless. It's all worthless. Even though you were generous, even though you were sacrificial, you gave away all of those things. You did all of those Christian things, and they seemed Christian, and they would have been among the most impressive in your entire church. And yet, if in your heart there is no love, you don't know Christ. You don't know Christ, and you are not ready for the return of Christ. He takes it further. Paul says that not only that, but if you give up even your own life, that is that if you go and you decide with missionary fervor, that you're going to go to the ends of the earth, and you're going to go to a closed country, and you're going to tell them about Christ, and telling them about Christ even costs you your life, that you can die a martyr's death, but if in your heart there is not a passion for Jesus Christ, if in your heart there is not a love 
for Jesus Christ, if in your heart there is nothing more than false motive and poor attitude, then you do not know Christ. It doesn't matter what your Christian resume says. It doesn't matter what your church credentials are, that you can be in the church, you can be among the church, you can be with Christians and seem like a Christian and look like a Christian and do like a Christian and not be a Christian because internally you don't love God. You see, this parable is about external religion that has no internal impact or internal root. So brothers and sisters, let me ask you, what about your heart? What about your standing? I know you're in church this morning, and I know you come faithfully. You're even here during vacation season, man, and you're listening to everything that's being said. You're listening to all the things that are coming and all the things that I'm talking about at weekend and week out, and you're writing your checks, and you're going on mission trips, and you're doing all these wonderful things that appear Christian and seem Christian and are Christian. But brothers and sisters, what about your heart? What about your heart? Because one day you are going to stand before the judge and you are going to stand before him naked and exposed. And he will know every motive. He will know every attitude. He will know every, every reality. Will he say, well done, my good and faithful servant? Or will he say, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. Your good works, they're alien to me. Your good, your good deeds, alien to me. Your church attendance, alien to me, only stacking up the record of your debt because you believe you are good enough and righteous enough to be welcomed into my kingdom, even though you stand not in my righteousness, but your own. Brothers and sisters, what about you? It's a terrifying passage. Because Jesus, one of the things that Jesus has made most clear over the course of his teaching, over the course of his ministry, is that within the church, the wicked and the wise grow together. That there are, are tares among the wheat. There are good among the bad. And in this, I don't know that this is intended to be a direct percentage, but this is a 50-50 proposition. Half are accepted and half are denied. Brothers and sisters, evaluate your heart. Be honest about where you are. Be honest about who you are. Because one day, you will not be able to give your Christian resume and say, but I did this, and I preached in your name, and I gave in your name, and I went in your name. And then say, oh, well, in that case, come on in. Instead, if that's all you've got, he will say, depart from me, for I never knew you. As we, as we read the parable, one of the things that becomes evident and apparent is that it's the, it's the delay that separates the wicked from the faithful. It's the delay that separates those who are walking with Christ and loving Christ and those who in fact just want all of the religious benefits, all of the everlasting benefits, but none of the current commitments. We have one group that burns out flames out, goes out, and another, uh, another half that endures and presses on. And for one, it is a moment of panic when the king returns, when the bridegroom comes. For the other, it is a time of rejoicing. For one is found ready and one is found ill-prepared. And so what we see is that not only do the wise and the wicked grow together, but the wise and the wicked wait together. You see, 
our tribulation and our timing are intended to demonstrate who has true faith and who doesn't. The delay of God, the delay of Christ in coming for His church and the tribulation that all of us experience in this turbulent age is intended to show who is a part of the true church and who is not. For those who are faint and who are able to, to grow in, in, in anticipation and in excitement and in joy, they are shown and proven to be those who are in the true church. And those who flame out, those who burn out, those who, who wear out, they are shown to be those who could not endure until the end and are now excluded from the Christian celebration. And so as we watch and as we look and as we think we can realize that all of us who are wise, all of us who are unwise will go through the same tribulations together. In fact, what we see is that there are seven times in the book of Matthew where the word wise is used. Or where the word wise is used. And in all seven instances where the word wise is used, in all seven instances, it is used to describe someone who must directly endure a tribulation. You might think again to Matthew chapter 7. What does it say? Those who are wise will build their house upon the rock. They will build their house upon my word. And when the storms come and the waves crash and the wind blows, their house will stand. You see, all of us, we're waiting together. We're waiting together on the bridegroom to come, and when he comes, we will be found either ready or unready. All of them had the same job. All of them had the same responsibility to light their torches, but only half of them had proven that they were ready for endurance. Only half of them have proven that they were prepared and willing to wait as long as it takes. The first half, the lazy half, the ill-prepared half, they showed that they only planned on being there for a little while. They, were, they only had staying power for a little while. It was the faithful half. It was the wise half that brought the extra oil. It was the wise half that came and said, you know what, as long as the bridegroom takes, as much tribulation as we face, as much hardship as we face, as much endurance as necessary, the bridegroom is worth it. And I will take my mission and I will do what he has called me to do for as long as it takes, for as long as I have to wait. I will give everything that I have. And when the bridegroom comes, the others, those who are caught, and they are in a moment of panic and pandemonium, they look to those who have oil and them not having oil, and they say, can we have some? Can you give us what you have so that we can join in with you and go and celebrate the coming of Christ forever? And you know what they say? No. No. There isn't enough. There isn't enough. That is, brothers and sisters, we cannot give our faith to another. We, you cannot take the faith of another. We cannot share oil with one another. Your kids cannot have your faith. Your grandkids cannot be brought into the celebration of the bridegroom because you are faithful. They must be faithful. They must know the Lord. We must be honest and truthful with them. And so this morning I ask you, as we look and realize that Tribulation and time are the great separators of the wise and the foolish. Where are you? Who are you? You see, tribulation will do one of two things. Tribulation will either increase your reward or increase your condemnation. Tribulation will either increase your reward or it will increase your condemnation. 
when Christ returns and the day of judgment is upon us, if you are found ill-prepared, if you are found unready for his return, then the longer that you live, the greater the judgment will be against you. For the greater the debt of sin will be stacked up in your life. The more righteous things that you attempt to do will only increase your offense toward God because with every righteous thing that you did, you declared again and again, God, I don't need your help. I don't need your provision. I don't need your deliverance. All of your church attendance will stack against you. All of your church giving will stack against you. All of your work in the soup kitchen will stack against you against you. All of your being a good neighbor will stack against you because with every single instance you declare again and again, I don't need the righteousness of Christ. I am sufficient in my own righteousness. And so when the time comes and the judgment has come, all of the tribulation, all of the enduring, all of the laboring will be stacked as a debt against you so much so that you will declare on that day and on every day thereafter, it would have been better if I had not been born. Oh, but brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, if you are found to be ready, if you are found to be engaged in Christ, committed to Christ, obedient to Christ with a heart that is radiating with love and passion for Christ on that day when the judge comes you will be judged not for your self-righteousness not for your wickedness not for all that you have done wrong but you will be judged covered in the goodness covered in the clothes uh, clothes righteousness over you and you will realize on that day that all of your tribulation all of your enduring has done nothing but take time and stop up reward after reward after reward for you in heaven because on that day Christ will come back and there will be a new normal in your life that will start on that day and last every other day that on that day you will have a joy that is full a joy that is complete and a joy that is no longer under threat you will live from that day for the rest of your days with an unthreatened joy in Jesus Christ at the celebration of the bridegroom declaring his wonder declaring his glory declaring his goodness so that everyone will know all of the angels singing all of the creatures of heaven singing all of the church of Jesus Christ singing worthy is the lamb who was slain worthy is the lamb who was slain brothers and sisters are you ready are you ready are you ready for the return of Christ which two of the classes will you be in which Way will you be found when the judge returns? Let's pray together.